Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Ronnie Horn. But before we get to the program, a quick reminder. Aside from your telling your friends about the program, nothing helps us more than your giving us a rating and a review on sites such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you download the program. The more ratings we get, the more their algorithms will show us to possible new subscribers. The more the merrier. Thanks. Now to Ronnie Horn. The Nashery Sculpture Center in Dallas is showing the first American museum exhibition devoted to Horn's cast glass sculptures. Eight of them are on view in the Nashery's Renzo Piano Design Building through August 20th. In New York, the commercial gallery Hauser & Wirth is presenting the debut of four new horns, including two recent glass sculptures. Horn has been mining the intersection of minimalist object-making and conceptualism in sculpture, photography, and works on paper, and particularly the relationships between discrete objects, since the mid-1970s. In 2009, a retrospective of her work was organized by the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York, the ICA Boston, the Tate Modern in London, and the Collection Lambert in France. The show was called Ronnie Horn, a.k.a. Ronnie Horn. Horn has also had other solo shows at many institutions, including the Art Institute of Chicago, the Pompidou in Paris, and the Dia Center for the Arts in New York. Ronnie Horn for the full program, after the break. Support comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Blue Black, curated by influential American artist Glenn Ligon. Inspired by his experience of the Pulitzer's monumental Ellsworth Kelly wall sculpture, Blue Black, Ligon enlists the colors blue and black to pose timely and nuanced questions, touching upon notions of language, identity, and perception. The exhibition brings together a diverse selection of more than 50 works, ranging from abstraction to portraiture, from Norman Lewis to Andy Warhol, and including well-known works by Ligon. Blue Black is on view now through October 7th. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. From Washington, D.C., and America's first modern art museum, come Manet, Degas, and Cezanne, Van Gogh, Gauguin, Bernard, and Matisse, along with Picasso, Brock, Miro, and Kandinsky. A modern vision, European masterworks from the Phillips Collection at the Kimball Art Museum through August 13th. Plan your visit at kimballart.org. And we're back. Ronnie Horn, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Let's start with glass, as that's what's up at the Nasher Sculpture Center. Instead of starting with the Nasher work, I want to start at an earlier beginning with your senior thesis show at the Rhode Island School of Design, where you made a glass, uh, a series of glass works called Colored Glass Wedges or Untitled. These were small, color-rich glass objects on shelves in mostly empty rooms of a large 19th century house, an 1860 house in Providence. Do you remember, I imagine you do, uh, why you wanted to work with glass then? I, I remember absolutely because uh, it directly related to my experience of colored glass windows in churches and temples. And the metaphysical components in there uh, were very striking to me when I was younger. Obviously, it was it was... The presence of color, but it was the, it was a mixing with light and the sense of the palpable and the physical, kind of all in one thing. So that became a kind of a role model for the experiential in my work, literally. You know, so 
I knew right away that that would be something I'd want to do when I got to into art school. Not so much glass per se, but color in this experiential kind of array. I didn't know what it would look like. You know, I when I was at Rhode Island School of Design, I did uh, putts around in the, in the glass department. I was not good at anything except developing chemistries for color. You know, so I had a little hot pot and I would play around with the various chemistries and melt glass and create just just color samples, you know. And at some point, I just said, oh, fuck this, it's not going to work. I don't have any of the skill sets. Part of me was, thank God, but, but another part of me at the time was kind of very disappointed. And so I wound up, this is kind of a, a make it a long story short, I wound up writing to the major companies that produced glass at the time, and I appealed to their their ethical position and said, can't you help a young, you know, aspiring artist going to school, blah, blah, blah. And what, what came of it was that I got responses, positive responses from many of these companies, and I was able to produce the colored glass wedges. So that was the um, optical glass with, with mass casting of color is not common technology. So that company, one of the companies that sponsored me, sponsored that work, turns out to be the same company I'm working with today. You know, this isn't a question I would, I would normally ask, but we are talking about undergraduate work. At the time, did you and do you now think that that piece worked? that it was successful, that it, it, it was as important as people like me kind of look back and think it must have been? <laughs> well, you know, it, it was striking at what a mirror it was to my, my sense of self and everything. You know, one thing that, that you did mention that these, these colored glass wedges, they're quite small. They're, I don't know, maybe six inches high. I can't, can't remember now, but and they sit on these little shells, but those shells I also produced so that they're just, you know, custom made so that you would screw them in to the wall anywhere you thought you wanted that intense moment of color to occur. So that was all part of the conception. It wasn't just the glass or the, the light and the color. It was how the viewer would interact with it. All of all of that was, and it was there in that work. And I think that it definitely, I, I feel very connected to it. Yes, I, I really do. That, that work and another work called Ant Farm, which was also done at the same time, those two works were kind of seminal for me in terms of understanding what, what my next, you know, where I was going. Were you, at the time, thinking of the glass wedges as, as, an, as an address of minimalism? Because I, I, should, I should note, we're talking about uh, like 74, 75 here. Uh, minimalism was about 10 years old. Right. Yeah, definitely that language was in there. I can't um, imagine it wasn't. I'm not sure how conscious I was of it. I can't, I can't remember that aspect of it. I don't think I was steeped in art history at that point. I was uh, 18 years old, 
but I, I knew enough. I mean, so I would say that I was definitely influenced by that language, with, without a doubt, yeah. And maybe if I talk about that work today, and you ask me if I think it's entirely successful, I think that would be the one uh, question that I have, which is, did I, re did I transcend those influences there? And I'm not so sure I did, you know, in that work. I mean, one of the things about that work that's interesting to me is that if one thinks about it as an address of minimalism, it's going small, it's going intensely colorful, it's going in, you know, forgive the phrase, but not necessarily logical parts of a room or gallery. You know, it's going to a very artist-determined place. Tyler, I think that that's really an astute response. I, I, you know, it isn't minimalism, it's a reality. And as you're pointing out, it has, I don't know, is there a more sophisticated word than romance for, <laughs> you know, playing with color that way and working with qualities that are not really based in, in logic or rational points, you know, but in the sense that there is a moment between the viewer and the view, and I was focusing on that more than the actual object. I always thought of the objects, and especially with Anform, as performative. And by that I don't mean, oh, a person interacts physically necessarily, but spiritually. At about the same time, and in about the same way, I'll be with different materials, Gene Davis was doing some of the same things with those little one inch by one inch or two inch by two inch, very tiny paintings that he would install in the corners of architectural space. It's a, it's a similar response with different, different stuff. Yeah. I think, I think the only difference really is the element of light, which glass manifests like no other material. So the obvious question I'm probably far too obviously working toward is, do you, other than, you know, working with the same company, do you think of there as being a long and old and deep relationship between those colored glass wedges and the cast glass pieces you've been making for the last 10 years or so? Well, there's a, clearly there's a relationship, there's knowledge, et cetera. It took me a long time to develop the technology to get the pieces that you see in Nasher. I would say that took a good five, six years. The first unit that I cast in, in, in a five-ton scale, which is, in fact, the largest massive casting of optical glass in the world, so, so they tell me. It is a work called Pink Tons, which I showed in London at the Tate. It was included in this survey in yeah, 2008, yeah. And then I went on to develop it. The most recent work is, and probably the final works in these indoor glass series, are these water doubles that are now at uh, DIA. And uh, I think when I saw, not DIA, but New York DIA, the old space, Hauserworth is inhabiting the old space of DIA, ironically for me, since this is my second time in that space. You know, it's weird to come back to it, and I kind of didn't feel comfortable with it, but, you know, timing was everything, and these works were sitting in storage, so I decided to go for it. But they have what I call an oculus form, and the quality and the ultimate paradox of glass, which I'm so drawn to, is the fact that it's a super-cooled liquid, the fact that it appears as a solid 
So when people look in these works, look at these works, the question that I've been asked, and which was really shocking to me, was what's inside? And I, you know, obviously people wondered, is it water? And that really kind of, kind of uh, signaled to me that I kind of arrived at, at the end game. So yeah, I think there's a strong connection between that early work conceptually and this work, but there was no continuity. I stopped completely any connection to glass for, I don't know, 20 years. Yeah, that's why I ask, yeah. You know, and but, you know, I, I knew um, part of the problem with these glass pieces, very expensive to produce. I never had, you know, from a purely uh, economic point of view, the opportunity to work like that prior to my actual involvement with it. So. We'll come back to water a little bit later, as you can imagine. You know, 40 or 50 years after kind of, or 55 years after kind of the, the, the evolution uh, or beginning of minimalism, there is less of, I don't know, an immediate imperative for an artist to respond to minimalism. So I don't know that I think of these big cast glass pieces as being particularly about minimalism, especially because you've taken on some of minimalism's scale and weight over the years. Do you think of yourself as addressing minimalism with them, or are you mostly addressing your own oeuvre, your own your own experience working through other materials such as such as water? Yeah, I think the latter. I uh, I think that the realities of my work is that, or the way I work is, I work in many different forms simultaneously. Sculpture is is one one of really four, I guess you would break it down, or three. And my feeling is that the, these different idioms are cumulative in terms of the experience of my work. And to just isolate one body of work, like drawing or sculpture or photography, is not really a way into the work. That, that's my feeling. So I don't think I would put these in the context of minimalism at this point, but uh, obviously, if you're looking from a purely historical point of view, there are connections. But I think history is, is less kind of present in a funny way today than it, than it was when I was coming into the art world. People, you know, e even by the time you got to the 80s, where you had this very kind of what I see as very reactionary time for the art world, really reactionary against minimalism, against the dogmatism and against the um, kind of attitude-filled mentality of minimalism, also against the patriarchy of it, I think. And then you, you get, you know, people, anybody from Julian Schnabel to Clemente working in this very kind of, well, uh, ex expressionistic way. And you know, kind of created that rupture. And then, you know, so goes the history moving forward. It's kind of splintered to the extent that you not, I don't feel like art can be seen as kind of reacting so exclusively to, to art. You mentioned that these are probably your last cast glass pieces indoors. Are you thinking about or planning cast glass pieces outdoors? Yeah, there, there's um, not really thinking in terms of a whole new body of work, but there is something that's kind of 
kind of inspired by this last group of glass pieces uh, in the, at the Nasher and at Hauser Worth in New York. So you're dealing with pieces of a similar scale. That's about 10,000 pounds each casting. So work that I'm hoping to realize in northern Norway now is called Air Burial. And these are, uh, it's, it's kind of a, a linear installation of these, these objects, maybe six or seven of them. And there'll be maybe 100 feet, 150 feet space between. So it's kind of a walking cadence, walking or skiing, I guess, because you're so far north there. A lot of snow. You know, basically these objects placed outside will break down very quickly because this is not a glass that goes outside uh, into piles of rubble, colored piles of rubble sitting in the landscape. Within, within a year, you'll have rubble. Within 10 years, you'll have smaller rubble. So that's sort of <laughs> the future uh, of the work. And uh, I feel the metaphor is just so inescapable that I'm very comfortable to, to venture out outside on, in this, on this one occasion. You mentioned a few moments ago the relationship that viewers find or wonder about between water and the cast glass pieces. Is the relationship between water and glass interesting to you, and was it maybe even motivational in these pieces? You know, I'm asked that enough that it makes me wonder that there must be something going on from the inside out, but I don't think that I was conscious. It, it was a conscious decision. I know that, that glass is a fluid. Its form is not solid. Its form is fluid. And the transparency element, both of these things fascinated me. Partly because you see with a, with a question, uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, the, the question of what's inside tells you that transparency is a hoax. Really what you've got, no matter what, is doubt. And that's really at the core of every experience that I'm aware of, but certainly artistic ones. So, I, I, you know, I, I, I think it must, must be, but uh, it's not really conscious on my part. Still drawn to water, I don't think that's going to change. I don't know that there's any more glass in me. I'm not a materials-based artist. I'm just somebody that has a, a sensitivity to materials and the experiential qualities they offer. I think the, the, cop, the copper pieces down in Marfa have that quality too. But it's just, a, it's just a, a, something that, that I grew up with kind of a natural awareness of that's kind of had a huge influence on, on how I work. You know, the, the other thing that's been probably the key influence more than certainly more than than art per se has been being out in the landscape in Iceland that's been unforgettable and it's permeated every aspect of what I do so that started at the same time I did those glass wedges just to kind of give you a time frame because a year after I did those I got a, a grant from graduate school to go to uh, to do a travel was a travel grant, and I went to Iceland for the second time. I spent six months there on the on the motorcycle in a tent, 
That was 1979. Living my dream. We will get to Iceland in a moment. While we're still with the cast glass, two more things directly about them, I think. You, you told Jarrett Ernest in an interview for the Brooklyn Rail that, quote, kids always want to lick them, which I think is an appropriate response. That's also one of the great artist quotes in recent memory. Is the temptation to touch them or to physically interact with the cast glass pieces important to you? Well, I, I think they're provocative because they're so sensual. And I think that's natural. It would be important to me if there was a way of preventing damage. But you really need a little bit of carelessness or malice to damage them. Licking is not an issue. You know, you're welcome to lick the sculptures if you can get there in a museum setting. <laughs> that's not a problem. A thousand museum guards just suddenly blanched. But, how, you know, but, you know, then I know I'm jumping ahead or to the side here. You do have this work, Library of Water, which are these columns of, of glass, transparent, hollow columns filled with glacial water. And it's a little bit of a fun house for kids because of the distortion, the optical distortion. But kids, you, you can go in there after you've, you've shown it, you've had a group of kids going through, and you just see lick marks at about three feet off the ground, all the way around each column. <laughs> you know, one of the things I noticed about the website for that work, Library of Waters, it, it's on the uh, northwest coast of Iceland in a community center. So, so it's the kind of place where kids are, are likely to be. One of the photographs of that piece, presumably a photograph you were okay with slash approved, is of a hand reaching out toward one of these giant plastic columns. And it, from the angle of the photograph, it's impossible to tell if that hand is touching the artwork, touching the column, or if it's simply being seen through it. And you must have been okay with that. Well, if the issue is about touching. That, that's not really an issue with this work. But that kind of distortion occurs when you get near it. You don't have to touch it. If it's the one I think you're talking about with a, with a girl... Yep, with a giant hand. <laughs> the phenomenon of, of the distortion. You have made cast glass works both in, in circular forms, forms that are, are circular, and in forms that are closer to rectangular. You know, what is the difference in that form for you? How is that difference in form meaningful in these pieces? Yeah, I don't know that it is, really. I think um, it's not arbitrary, but I, I don't think there's really a... A difference. I think if you pink tons versus some of the recent round masses, uh, they're very similar. So working our way from glass in, in this work to other work, you mentioned the weight of the cast glass work, and you've made pieces that are enormously lighter, such as Goldfield 1980-82. Uh, it's at the Guggenheim. It's essentially a four by five foot sheet of pure gold foil. Can you talk through how you think about weight as something that an artist can wield as part of an artwork? Do you, do you think that way? Well, it, I use weight to, to, to manifest presence, not only with the transparent materials, but, but I think with the copper pieces down in Texas, things that happen again, that those are each a ton. And it's very important, the, the, the solidness, even though a viewer wouldn't necessarily know that as a fact. 
I believe they would feel it as part of the experience. You do. I do. So that's how I use weight. Other, other than that, I, I don't engage with it conceptually. I mentioned Goldfield from the, the early 80s. You've made at least two gold foil works that are quite well known. Goldfield, of course, is at the Guggenheim. Another major piece is called Paired Gold Mats for Ross and Felix, 94-95, the reference being to Felix Gonzalez-Torres and his partner, Ross Laycock. And that, that piece is, uh, we'll have images of all of these on manpodcast.com, but that, that piece is two gold foil sheets. Gold is is even even more than glass, a, a history-laden material. It's in our mythology. It has decorative and religious significance, especially when, when used in art. And of course, it's both a symbol and has uh, both now and historically economic value. So to work with gold is to engage, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of years of, of human history. Was that attractive? Was that one of the things about working with gold that was attractive to you? Yeah, I think I was reacting to to the history of gold, uh, sociological, economic, uh, cultural, all of these things. And, you know, I I think it was Thoreau who said, I want a closer relationship to the sun. That would be one source for the gold work, because uh, because gold's mythological relationship to the sun. I don't know where I... I, I think I was probably... <laughs> hate to say it, I was reading a lot of Heidegger, and uh, I know that he had an influence on this idea. I don't know how literally, but he's in there. The gold, the original gold field was really just, conceptually for me, was just about giving back the physical reality of gold back to itself. The physical reality that had been stripped from it, mythologically, certainly. Uh, culturally, it was always used as a surface. I mean, of course, there are some small castings of gold from early cultures where you have high-purity gold. But part of the process was to go to a very, very highly purified gold. And the reason is because gold has distinctive physical qualities that are virtually unique to itself. And that allowed me to create this very thin foil in such a large expanse. That's one of them, the malleability of gold. So I thought, you know, why not throw it out there with the dust and give it its due? And once I made the piece, I started to play with it a little physically to kind of fold it and this kind of thing. And then I got that incredible firelight glow that actually just blew me away. And I un- all of a sudden, I understood the whole history of mythology and where the relationship to the sun and perfection and fire and all of that came from. But in the meantime, I grew up with gold rings, which are, you know, as far as the actual reality of gold, they're, they're, they're like anti-gold. So I was coming from that point of view to kind of see what it would be if it was just itself. The other thing is when you make these gold strips, you can you can compression weld them, which is just a form you just hammer it to itself, and it's a condition of this level of purity that gold will stick to itself. So what you're looking at is this. You know, they call it 9.5 pure, 99.999 pure. 
So it's not a carrot gold. It's way beyond that. So that's what you've got. That's what you're looking at. Just a surface that is also, you know, a mass in a sense, a, a massive thing. It has the physical integrity of a massive, of an object. I should I should have noted that that purity is so important to the work that I, I assume it was you who insisted that you know when you're at a museum and you you and a museum catalogs a work and they say what the work was made out of oil and canvas yada 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 for for this work at the Guggenheim it specifically says 99.99 percent pure gold is the material it's it's part and parcel yeah I mean gold is usually measured in carat purity and that is not close to what this is so if you have 24 karat gold which is considered by a jeweler to be pure gold it's it's nowhere near this level of purity you mentioned earlier that you don't think of yourself as a materials artist but we've only talked about a couple of materials so far and you've talked about them with with great specificity and and great causality did you, do you have uh, a list either on paper or in your head of materials that intrigue you or that that seem to exist around ideas that interest you? Because gold and, and glass are not close in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, no, I do. I, I don't have a list, but I, I do. I, as, as I was talking earlier, I, I grew up with this sensitivity to the differences among things experientially, you know, it, it, it covers pretty much anything tangible that I have that connection to, whether I want to work with it. I think I'm more motivated conceptually, you know, the way I'm talking about gold or the way I'm talking about glass. It's as much about the conceptual qualities it inspires as you know, if gold hadn't been stripped of, of its identity and represented as gold throughout the history of time, I wouldn't have done this work because this is, this is the gold that literature and mythology refers to, but it's not the gold that everybody grew up with. So it's really that's what connects me to the material more than, you know, wanting to work with gold. That's, that wasn't the motivation. It was, it was the contradiction and the negation of this material that, that attracted me. And same thing with glass. It's just full of paradox. And I am one girl that's totally attracted to paradox. Using uh, Ross and Felix and that gold piece is a bit of a pivot. You have now, for at least 20 years, riffed on single ideas with paired twin really objects that make up a single artwork and i don't know what the first one was but the marfa one uh the copper piece is 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 close and that's 485 i think that that copper pair but there is an early one uh, tyler there was when i was again now in graduate school going for graduation 78 i did a show of something called uh they were actually rubber mats and they were a pair as well. It's not really worth describing. If I can it. jump in, it's field and slab slope forms from 1978. They were in your graduate show at Yale. Two, two soft rubber wedges. One was extremely thin and delicate. One was a couple inches tall, uh, a slab that was thick and, and, and blunt. So the pairing is two things of the same, same material but composed differently. 
Yeah, the the the, the field was was kind of like a landscape because it was so deferential to circumstance, and the uh, the slab was like a, a, a kind of more dogmatic object. So it was just uh, playing with those identities of, of the same thing. I mean, that is something that's come in the the issue of identity and the um, or the rumor of identity that people carry around with them and how, in fact, complex and, and uh, multi- what is the word? Multiple it is, I guess. I'm glad you brought that piece up because I've never seen it in person and, and have always wanted to and had wondered, indeed, if it was a step toward twinning. The Marfa piece, 8691, is, is the date Chinati and the Judd Foundation, which owns it and has loaned it on a long-term basis to Chinati, where it is on view now. In an essay for the survey of your work seven or so years ago at the Tate Whitney and ICA Boston, Brioni Fair describes Donald Judd as one of your first collectors. Is that right? How did that come to pass? It's right. And uh, it just, uh, I I didn't know him personally then. We actually uh, met, I'm pretty sure that the piece that he the one that I know that he bought first, which was the the things that happened again, it was about it was, he bought it bought it out of that show, but I didn't meet him until a year later or so, and at that point he'd been been buying quite a number of the the pigment drawings. So, unbeknownst to me, he was quite quite supportive of the work. Things that happen again is the twin copper piece I, I I mentioned a moment ago. Did you and he talk about the relationship or similarities between or importance to each of you of uh, Marfa and Iceland? Well, that you know, he also was there. That was something that I learned. Uh, he had a, a a very strong affinity with Iceland, and that would put it back in the. Mid-70s, I think he started to go there a bit, which was also around the time that I started going there. Obviously, we were in different parts of our career, but I think for the same reasons. And I think that actually, Marfa, there are qualities there that reminded both of us of Iceland, which, you know, I can't exactly articulate. It's something to do with the transparency of everything, you know. Is it a feel, or is it the landscape, or...? Not specifically the landscape, because there's nothing like Iceland in Marfa, and Marfa in Iceland is nothing literal. I think it's more experiential. I think it really is to do with how self-evident everything is visually. Also, Texas, the scale is just way beyond Iceland. You did not make things that happen again specifically for Marfa, but it's a piece that's become, you know, inevitably related to Marfa. Is there a process or intentionality or lack of intentionality in that that matters to you or has become interesting to you? As far as what goes, the way that is locked into Marfa or? Yeah, the relationship between the place and the sculpture. Because you didn't, you didn't intend it at the beginning, but it's ended up becoming part of the thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised at how it's taken on a life of its own, and uh, I, I think a lot of it is the way that work plays off the, the, the indigenous architecture, or at least that room, and. 
And when I don't know if it's still open to the desert, but when I installed it, all the windows there were were broken out. So it really was in the desert. You know, it was just, the room was really minimal. So you that that relationship was very very strong, and I was very happy with it. I knew from the beginning. You don't have too many opportunities to install in these kinds of architectural settings and, and, and of course, geographic locations. My guest is Ronnie Horn. We'll be right back after a break. Support comes from the Getty. Retro girl group La Luth performs at the Getty Center on Saturday, June 24th at 6 p.m., as part of the 2017 Off the 405 Outdoor Summer Concert Series. Enjoy the snappy surf and indie rock sounds of this all-female band as they navigate through themes of loneliness, infatuation, and obsession. Bringing some of today's most exciting bands to the stage, the Getty presents an evening of live music and stunning architecture and breathtaking sunset views. Learn more about this show and other upcoming performances at getty.edu slash 360. The critically acclaimed retrospective Robert Rauschenberg Among Friends is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. An exploration of Rauschenberg's wide-ranging career and commitment to openness and collaboration, the exhibition features over 250 works, including contributions from friends and collaborators such as John Cage, Merce Cunningham, Jasper Johns, Cy Twombly, and Tricia Brown. Get more info and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. And now back to my conversation with Ronnie Horn. People like me are fascinated by the idea of trying to figure out where, what artists do come from. And these twinned things you've done over, over the many years seem, you know, there are, there are a couple of obvious art historical possible references. One, I guess the one that gets talked about the most is Rauschenberg's two factums, factum one and factum two, one at MoCA, one at uh, MoMA in New York. And of course, Clifford Still was making paired paintings at least as early as 1943. When you started twinning things in the late 70s and 80s, were you aware of or thinking about either of those, or is that something historians bring in later? I think that that definitely is a historical thing, because I was coming from a more personal angle with the doubling. It wasn't so formal. But, for example, with things that happen again, I remember the origin of that work was totally conceptual. It was when I was reading a book, and somehow they had, mis, they had misbound the book. So the same signature occurred twice in two different locations in the book. Right? So you're reading this narrative, and all of a sudden you, you kind of jump back to a repeat of a segment of the narrative that you've already read. So that's what inspired this work. And then as I, you know, the first pair object that I did, which actually had that name, was from uh, 1980, the clock tower. Part of it, clearly there is a formal element, but there is very much of a social and experiential one. So, or social is maybe not the right word, cultural. Uh, which refers to identity. 
you mentioned the personal aspect in the catalog for the Whitney Tate ICA Boston show. How do I how do I describe this? It's a two volume catalog. One volume features you know kind of the usual curatorial historian essays about catalog, and the other volume is an artist book, although it's not identified that way. But it's something that I developed personally because I loved this way of entering the work. So it's called the subject index, uh, which is kind of a glossary of of all all things relevant to what I do. And one of the entries, uh, one of the entries that is written by you, there are critics and historians and curators who write some or many of the other entries, is on androgyny. And it's from a 2003 letter you wrote to Paolo Herkenhoff. And it says, quote, the androgyny of my name, Ronnie, had a deep influence on me. I understood from when I was young that my gender was nobody's business. Androgyny is the possibility of a thing containing multiple identities. Integrating difference is the basis of identity, not the exclusion of it. You are this and this and that. Does pairing things have roots in your address of gender? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think I, to, you know, to kind of even amend that, that comment, that quote, I never, I grew up not really identifying with the options, which was male or female. So I, I never felt comfortable with them. As I got older and as I became, graduated from college and I started to become an artist, I realized that I was now in this, this place, so-called woman artist, which was not acceptable to me, which I had to deal with. It is what it is. But to qualify the word artist is already a problem. But to do it with something that I didn't relate to was was a uh, was a difficult thing, so yeah, I think that the twinning or multiple part works twinning referring to the age old reality of things are often uh, in their identity a multitude, which is you are the weather, but dead owl is an example of something that is kind of ricochets off itself because there are two points of reference, not one that allows the viewer to kind of fall into this vortex of doubt. So before we get to Dead Owl, which is two photographs of a white owl that appear to be identical, I wanted to ask you about the cast glass piece you mentioned earlier, Pink Tons from 2008. You know, because pink is such a loaded color, probably more loaded with unspoken reference than any other color, because black is the absence of color. Pink is, of course, considered a female color by by most of western culture it's tempting to read pink tons as an address of big male minimalism were you interested in that or did you specifically not care about it that even though you were making it pink no i i not minimalism it has nothing to do that way i mean yes obviously it's a the work is definitely a play on tony smith's die i mean the form is but I threw in this caveat, which was definitely uh, related to social construct of, of gender. And then I threw in the reality of this experience, which has nothing to do with either of those things. You mentioned Dead Owl. You have made a, a bunch of pieces with birds. So there's Dead Owl, there's Doubt by Water, which New Yorkers especially will remember as the stanchion piece from, from a Whitney Biennial years gone by, although it's been installed lots of other places. 
is that birds' gender is often difficult or impossible to know just from looking at them of interest to you? It's, that's a great question, I have to say. I've not never been asked it, and uh, it didn't occur to me. Well, yeah, it occurred to me, but more just in the general sense of identity. But no, I would say, you know, for example, the snowy owl and dead owl, that's a mature owl as opposed to a male or a female. Like the younger snowy owls have spot more spots on them. And I'm trying to remember if there was a reference to some of these some of these birds that I photographed, I'm not aware of what their gender was. More, one thing that happens with birds is they change, can change radically from their, their youth to their maturity. For example, a gannet can, went from this very beautiful brown with little white triangles in its feathers to kind of this Naples white, this beautiful kind of creamy color in its mature state. So uh, I love that as a metaphor for, for uh, identity uh, as well, this kind of aging process where you acquire completely new appearance, which is not, obviously as a, as a human, you're not going through quite as radical a change, but I think in uh, this uh, photographic work, AKA, where I've, collected together the whole history of me photographically, there is, you, you see this range of identity that's quite, it's kind of all over the map. You know, the, the cast glass pieces, with, with a couple of exceptions, aren't paired works. Unti- Untitled Flannery at the Guggenheim is, is. Is there a relationship between uh, a cast glass installation of four or five or seven cast glass pieces and twinning? Yes, I, I think uh, there's quite a lot uh, of sculpture that's been paired. Uh, th- th- there's a work called, called Untitled Yes, which I, which I showed at Thea in 2001, a month after the 9-11 situation. And it was a, a completely clear rectangular volume of glass, colorless, clear, and then a comparable, dimensionally comparable unit, black glass. That work's evolved to a new, uh, more recent work called Opposites of White. That definitely uh, is, is twinning, you know, you're taking the same material and you're giving different, different appearances to it. And the actual experience, experientially, they're very, very different objects, even though they have all of these similarities. You know, they share the same dimensions, the same production technique, and the same material. So, but yet, experientially, they're worlds apart. Did you make a conscious decision to bring cast glass and the cast glass works into your language of twinning? Or is twinning just such a part of your vocabulary at this point? It probably in some way touches everything that you do. I, th- I think twinning or multiplying is bigger than, than glass. Uh, unfortunately, I think what's happening in this conversation is the glass is taking on way too, too large a role from my point of view. I think from a viewer, I mean, those works, you know, I, I get a lot of feedback on those works because they're, that you know they make an impression, but uh, I wouldn't say I I wouldn't pick them out as kind of the leading 
body of work or something. I see them in this other context. So way we're talking about it now, I just am kind of inserting this aside because I feel like we uh, mislead uh, 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 the listeners uh, talking extensively about a material and a technique where that, that is not really indicative of my work. We've touched on Iceland and the Library of Water project a couple times, and I don't want to talk about water. So just to fill in what Library of Water is, it's 24 columns of water taken from glaciers installed in a community center in <laughs> Stickisholmer? Yeah, Stickisholmer. So let me correct you on that description. It was not a community center. I made the community center. Right, right. That's where I was going. Yeah, the building, it's, it's a very beautiful little kind of deco period building. Well, I call it delayed deco because in Iceland, everything was happening like 40 years after the fact. So that was actually built in the six, early 60s, the building. <laughs> but what I liked about that site was that it was built as a library and it was built at the high point of the town. So that already kind of blew my mind because usually you think the high point is always the wealthy or the church, you know? And here you had the most beautiful views in the town. You're surrounded by water on three sides, you know? It's a peninsula. So that, uh, I was immediately drawn to it when Art Angel asked me to do something for them in Iceland. I knew that this work, this building was for sale. I knew it was um, a lot, this library, they had outgrown the footprint of the library. They, they needed a larger library. So we, we got going on that and were able to, I don't know if we're renting it for 20 years or something or how it works exactly, but that was, our art angel was busy putting together the, the actual mechanics of the work, but you walk into this building and you have 24 uh, glass columns, and that's a technology that came out of the sewage industry, where I got these very, I think they're like 12 inches in diameter, and they go into the, into the floor and the ceiling, so they're just these glass verticals. And you walk in, it's kind of like a bit of a forest because of the way it's installed, almost like a drawing, I think, because that's how I place them intuitively. And you have uh, very rare water, meaning some of these glaciers they came from are gone now. It was done in 2006, the collection, 2005, 6, 7, the water was collected. These, you know, these two two elements, the, clear, the water, which was not clear for a couple of years because it was full of the sediment from the volcanic eruptions and all that was going on in Iceland. It was quite, some of the ice was almost black when it was taken from the glacier. You had blue ice, you had two different colors of blue, and you had white ice, you know, completely opaque white, and then you had completely clear ice. So that was kind of a beautiful, I, I loved seeing the ice in these very, very different aspects. And that for a few years was present in the work. And then once that material settled, you have these little kind of mini landscapes at the bottom of each column. And the, the columns are embedded in a floor, which is made of rubber. It's untitled, You Are the Weather. It's the same title as the photographic work. And that's the rubber floor. 
That's the work that has the collection of, of words used to describe the weather and humanity. So that's everything from, from frigid to nice, you know, the kind of most commonly used words in, in English. And on that site, it's also done in, in Icelandic. So I think it's the first bilingual sculpture ever. And the one other thing that's a component of that project structure is a writer's residency. Yeah, we when I when I re- renovated the building, I designed there there was a it was actually a kind of a vault room downstairs. I was able to open it up so it has windows and it became a really nice room for a writer and we invited young Icelandic writers but also people like Ann Carson, uh, Rebecca Solnit I think was there, uh, some well-known Icelandic artists but uh, I'm just thinking of who was there. There was, you know, for five years we had that residency, and I'm hoping we're going to start up a new one based on funding soon. And there was a fourth leg to that piece, which is weather reports you. Do you know that one, Tyler? That part of it is the uh, it's the book collection. The, the collected uh, it's kind of a collective self-portrait. Yes, and it's also the book is is on the website for the project and and we'll have a link to that on on manpodcast.com it's a 200 page art angel style co-published book people can still buy it's weather report it's actual weather reports from 2005 and 2006 well it it it, it isn't actual weather reports it's interviews with local people in the sticky summer area talking about the weather yeah, sorry, that's what I was trying to get. At. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so they're 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 really uh, the thing about Iceland is is its relationship to weather, which is which is the big one. That's the thing that's really contributed as much to its cultural identity as as anything. So, this idea of collecting these these uh, interviews was really a way of building a a portrait of Iceland. Yeah, and the book is in both English and Icelandic. So for our Icelandic-speaking audience, you'll get twice as much out of it. So a couple of things I wanted to ask you about kind of this project and its relationship to other projects in your oeuvre. You told Tate Etc., the magazine, for its summer 2007 issue, quote, on another level, I think of water as the ultimate form of androgyny, but that's another story. What's that story? Well, that story is, you know, here is... You could call it tolerance, or water is subject to all of the locations it exists in, and it takes on or is affected by what's, what its location is, chemically, visually, you name it. So in that sense, androgyny may not quite be the right word, but it's this idea of something that is mixing all of the possibilities together and it becomes this, well, oddly and paradoxically still transparent thing. So the, like the relationship to androgyny is more this relationship to, to a thing that, that absorbs or includes other identities as part of its own. I think I maybe understand why you were thinking of that in 2007 as this piece was opening. Or, or being finally realized after several years of planning. I haven't read you having said this, but it seems clear, but because you haven't said it, I guess I should ask about it. 
is Library of Water a specific and intentional address of climate change? I think it, it you know, it ultimately is. I did not kind of set it up to be that, but I knew it would be given the fact that this was going to be, you know, kind of designed as a permanent installation, I knew what was going on. So the, the, uh, the identity of the work would be shifting from this absurdist idea of archiving water to this political social reality of climate change or global warming. So... I'm reluctant to put down a source for work as purely political because I think when I think about art that has political content, the works that interest me most are ones where the political element is a glancing presence. Uh, I would use Felix Gonzalez Torres as an example that the, the, the political and social elements come into the work experientially, and obviously he was thinking about them, but they were not kind of the central structure of the work. So that's how I would talk about it. We've been talking a good bit about water, and, and one of your most famous pieces is Still Water, the River Thames, for example. It's one of a series of related works from the late 90s. It's photographs of the actual River Thames, you know, taken from outside the water, along with a series of footnotes, other riverscapes that you've made pictures of as part of that are, are, say, the Hudson River. Were you interested in the idea that these are all rivers, but they're totally different rivers, and and both showing that and having that as part of the work, but also having it not matter in the sense that they're pictures of water? Oh, yeah, I may have planned something, but I never got to the Hudson. There, yeah, I think you must be referring to the presence of another river in my work, which is the Skaftau, which is in Iceland, and it's a completely opaque cement. It looks like dark cement, the water, and it's in that Doubt by Water piece. That must be what you're thinking of uh, in, in counterpoint to, to the Thames. You know, I think I think river, uh, for uh, as with so so many people, river is a form that truly fascinates in, in the sense of uh, it, it's never the same thing twice. You know, in itself, which is uh, you know an, uh, an interesting caveat to add to this uh, androgyny identity brew that I've been looking at for years. So I think I, I'm totally attracted to that quality of a river more so than a lake or you know or a, a body of still water per se i don't i think the ocean is not is a completely separate entity when it comes to water in a sense but but the river is a, a unique form and the fact that it's connected with water i mean the river is both the the object it flows through and the water you know, so it's very much related to place, as you pointed out. So it, it's full of uh, very different qualities than it might be in another location. So, yeah, I would say those were that 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 was quite quite important. When when I did the uh, when I did the Still Water project, originally that was a commission from something called PADT, I think, and I'm not going to even remember what it what it stands for, but it was based in London. 
they commission something specifically on the Thames. And normally I don't do commissions and I don't take suggestions for subject matter. But I decided what the hell, I'd go over and take a look because apparently they were redeveloping along the Thames at that time quite heavily. And, you know, they were putting up a lot of, you know, kind of luxury real estate overlooking the Thames. And when I looked at the Thames, I thought that's that already is so amazing that here is this kind of filthy looking water. I mean, it is it it it, it, it happens to be today a pretty benign filth in the sense that it's mostly geologic. But over the years, it was truly a filthy river, you know, in the sense of toxic. Yet people wanted a view of it, no matter what. And I thought that was just fascinating to me. And and the fact is the Thames is an interesting river because it tends to almost mesmerize the more time you spend around it, you know, looking at it. And um, it's a tidal river, and it's been constricted through embankments. So it flows. It's got quite a strong, really lethal flow to it. So all those things plus the kind of opacity of it really fascinated me. History nerd question. John Ruskin famously wrote that the most difficult thing for an artist, and I think he was specifically thinking of painters, to show and to make look good and naturalistic was water. And he famously said that no one had ever done it. And then he finally sees Frederick Church, uh, and I think he probably saw the 1857 Niagara painting and finally felt like he'd seen it, like like somebody had, had done it. Were you interested in, in the Thames work with Ruskin's interest and in writing about the difficulty of portraying water? It's interesting. I, I would have thought he was uh, talking also a lot about the uh, about Turner. He was talking about the Dutch too. He was talking about the Dutch and their and, and their representations. You know, water. my favorite representations of water don't look like water at all. Those are Leonardo da Vinci's drawings of you know vortexes and clouds and things like this, wave patterns. Not really, no. I, I, I Obviously, the paradox, there are so many paradoxes in water, and again, I would say that's sort of more what I was attracted to. One is this kind of permanent association with transparency, uh, which even when it's not transparent, it's still associated with a positive, transparent form. And one is that that water tolerates everything around it in effect and forms itself around it or uh, absorbs it into itself, into its chemical being, and yet it tends to read as the same thing uh, no matter where you find it. So so those, those things really kind of got me fired up to get involved with water originally. Well, Ronnie Horn, it's been a lot of fun, and I'm really grateful for the time. Thanks for speaking with me. Okay, then, Tyler. And that's it. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.